descend on ground zero for a first-hand look. That's tomorrow. In just a couple of moments, we'll talk to a member of Congress who's already there. And a bad year for beer. Americans are not knocking back cold ones at the rate they used to. Why? It's more than just dry January that's keeping people dry. So thanks for being with, with us on the Hill. I'm Mike Vaccaro filling in for Blake Berman, joined by Ashley Davis, former George W. Bush White House official, Dan Cannon, former Obama campaign official, Crystal Knight, a Democratic strategist, and of course, Mick Mulvaney. He's a former Trump White House acting chief of staff and News Nation political and economic contributor. <laughs> the Hill on News Nation starts right now. Okay, we start today with major news. Harvard University President Claudine Gay is quitting under fire. In a statement, she said, quote, it has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. This comes after six new allegations of plagiarism against Gay, covering a published work and more of her dissertation. The Washington Free Beacon first reported this news. Calls for Gay's resignation started after her controversial congressional testimony where she failed to say if calling for the genocide of Jews was a violation of the university's bullying and harassment code. So joining us to discuss is the, with the panel is Eliana Johnson. Uh, you may remember Eliana as a moderator of our News Nation Republican candidate debate. She's also the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. And Eliana, it is great to see you here with us tonight. Tell me, what has the Washington Free Beacon uncovered that led to this startling resignation today? The Beacon ran two big reports, the first in mid-December and the second last night, revealing her extensive pattern of plagiarism in her rather limited academic work. Um, she only has 17 publications, which compared to some of her predecessors in the presidency of Harvard, is a pretty slim record of publication. And we revealed last night um, six more allegations of plagiarism that extend into an eighth of her major articles. And while the Harvard Corporation said in mid-December, that's the governing body of the university, that it stood unanimously behind her, it appears that they realized that, you know, plagiarists are sort of like yeah. um, people who commit sexual harassment. It doesn't happen just once that this drip drip of findings and allegations was going to continue and was just going to be unsustainable for the university. Right. And a lot of critics of Harvard said there was a double standard where students would have been thrown out uh, e easily if they had met the threshold that was met by President Gay. Uh, two tweets I want to, uh, to put up on the screen here. Elise Stefanik, of course, she is the Republican member, uh, House Republican member from upstate New York. Uh, she's been vocally criti critical of those uh, college presidents. She says, two down. Uh, Harvard knows that this long overdue forced resignation of the anti-Semitic plagiarist president is just the beginning of what will be the greatest scandal of any college or university in history. That two down is a reference to the fact that the president of the University of Pennsylvania, who was also on that House panel, who also gave sort of evasive answers on this question of genocide and, and Israel. Uh, she had quit uh, some weeks ago after that very controversial testimony. Then there's Bill Ackman, a, a prominent alum of Harvard, a very wealthy uh, financial hedge fund manager, simply tweeting, et tu, Sally, uh, a reference to Shakespeare and uh, <laughs> Julius Caesar, I guess. So what's next? Uh, you know, it would appear that, uh, Elia, uh, that um, Elise Stefanik uh, is not done here. 
No, she certainly is seeking the resignations of all three of the uh, college presidents who appeared on that panel before her. And certainly, I think that House hearing, which cast a national spotlight on those three leaders, um, led to a lot of scrutiny and raised questions in the minds of Americans. Who are the leaders of these incredibly influential American institutions and how are they being governed? And I think for Harvard, I wouldn't say they're quite done yet. I think the Harvard Corporation, the governing body of that school, really mismanaged um, this scandal in that they hired a top-notch defamation lawyer to threaten the New York Post out of running a story about these plagiarism allegations. They claimed to have conducted a thorough review into these allegations and said that it cleared her. So I think questions remain about how uh, <clears throat> Claudine Gay's bosses on the Harvard Corporation, yeah. who are titans of business, academia, law, manage that scandal. And the school still needs to answer for people who have not yet lost their jobs at that university. All right, Eliana Johnson, thank you very much. And for the Washington Beacon, uh, breaking this story, I want to turn to the panel now very quickly. Uh, Crystal, what do you make of, uh, of you know, the buildup here, the charges of plagiarism, and uh, the sudden resignation on January 2nd. Yeah, well, I think we have to you know, note that it's just charges. Many of the lawyers, or excuse me, many of the authors who were cited in the report actually stated that they don't right. believe that it's, it's plagiarism. And so this was a media war against gay, and we have to call that out what it is. No one wants to survive being constantly in the news around allegations that may not be true. Also, the university has a reputation to upkeep, and they, too, don't want to continue to see their president in the news. And so the media war won. Congresswoman Stephanie won. And so this is something, unfortunately, that we get to see um, a, a black woman who's a leader of a major institution having to resign only after six months. And so I think it's bad when we think about um, the education system in this country. Okay, so Ashley, is this a result of a right-wing media witch hunt? Well, I do agree with you 100%. This did turn into a media uh, circus. But however, what the, the main point is, is Harvard was also losing a ton of money because they were not dealing with the fact... Harvard's got a lot of money to lose, though. Exactly. Yeah. When you have major donor after major donor after major donor yeah. saying, if you guys don't do something about this, I'm stepping out. That, to me, is just as important as the plagiarism accusation. Okay. Joining us now, North Carolina Democratic Representative Kathy Manning. She is the co-chair of the House... Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism. Congresswoman, thank you very much for joining us on this day after New Year's Day. Uh, I'm, I, I'm wondering if you can tell us what you make of this, whether this is fair uh, to have the kind of pressure that resulted in this resignation today. Well, the one thing I want to mention that hasn't been discussed by your panel is that Harvard has a problem with anti-Semitism. And um, the resignation of President Gay does not solve that problem. The question I have is, what is Harvard going to do moving forward to make sure that Jewish students are safe, that they get to participate in the full range of their educational opportunities at Harvard? That's the question that I'm afraid is getting lost in all of this. So uh, there is one left, as was alluded to by Elise Stefanik when she said two down, and that is MIT President Sally Kornbluth, who was there in front of that panel. Uh, do you think that she deserves the kind of scrutiny? I mean, I, I would, I'm going to assume that the Washington Free Beacon and other news outlets are combing through her dissertations as well at this point. But did she, in your view, was her answer betray a certain amount of anti-Semitism at these elite institutions? 
I think there are problems at MIT, just as there were problems that were just that were displayed at the hearing at Harvard, uh, at Penn. I think both uh, both uh, President McGill and President Gay had other issues that combined with their failure to take proper steps to address anti-Semitism caused them to resign. I have not looked at uh, what other issues. Uh, President Kornbluth is dealing with. I don't know if there are other things in her background, but the question I have is what steps are these presidents, what steps are these universities going to take moving forward? There is a call, a need for decisive action and visionary leadership at yeah. all our campuses dealing with these issues. I, I'm going to read you a, a, a statement from Virginia Fox. She's the Republican from North Carolina who was the chairman of the House Education Workforce Committee, uh, who held that hearing. She says, while President Gay's resignation is welcome news, the problems at Harvard are much larger than one leader, and the committee's oversight will continue. So is it right for the committee now to continue this investigation of anti-Semitism at Harvard? I sit on that same committee. I know Chairman Fox. I do think it's appropriate for us to make sure that the issues of discrimination and anti-Semitism are being addressed on college campuses. And it, and it goes beyond what's happening to students. And it's also important to look at the faculties. Are there diverse faculties that have a range of views that, in this particular instance, uh, this is many of these protests have been about Israel. Are there faculty members who support yeah. the right of Israel? who exists as a Jewish state. If not, those schools have a problem. All right, Congresswoman Manning, thank you very much for joining, on, or joining us on this day after New Year's Day. Appreciate it very much. We'll thank see you. you back here next week. Congressman, Congressman former Congressman Mulvaney, uh, I know you got something to say about it. Oh, fascinating yeah. stuff. A couple different things. She wasn't fired because she was a black woman. She wasn't fired because she plagiarized. She, she was fired because of what she said at that controversial congressional hearing, right? Um, so, so was this she was, fired or did she resign? Uh, she was fired. Well, that's did a, she that's jump a, or was she pushed? That's a I really mean, question she, yeah. which gets to my next point. Which, and what you've just heard from, from a couple different people, from Elise Stefanik, a little bit from Virginia Fox, and also from uh, uh, Congressman Manning, two Republicans and a Democrat, is that the next call is either to different universities or possibly to the Harvard Corporation. If Harvard has a problem with anti-Semitism, okay, getting rid of the president might not be enough to solve the problem. And it sounds like this committee is going to continue down this path. And the next step would be to go and talk to members of the Harvard Corporation. What are you doing to fix the problem? Why did you uh, fire? Or did she really resign? Or what, was she fired? This is going to be I mean, I know this is politics. But, I mean, the fundamental question, the threshold question for a lot of us is, does the average person, the average American, what, does it matter to them what happens at Harvard University? No, I don't think it does. Ooh. I think this is a viral Ooh. moment. <laughs> no, no, guys, this is important. The Republican base definitely cares. Oh. Perhaps they do, guys. It's it's right, well, it matters, but does it matter in their lives? I think they're like, no, cares? Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I think that this is an interesting moment for us because there are real issues being discussed here. But the, the idea of, of, of the Congress going after private institutions of learning on this basis, I do not like. That said, I agree with what Representative Manning said, that this requires leadership, and I think what, what, what President Gay, former President Gay, failed to exhibit was strong leadership in this moment, and rather waffled and was arrogant in front of the Congress, and it cost her. And I think that's the point for her. Dan, oh, if, 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 but for the congressional investigation, what other remedy is it? How else does this come out? Listen, I'm a big critic of meaningless congressional investigations. I remember going back to the steroid crisis in baseball thinking, what is that all about? But in this particular circumstance, if these hearings don't take place, how does this stuff get exposed? Is it a lawsuit through Title IX by Jewish students? Or what, what is it? it I, I'm not like against the hearing itself. I, I, but I, I, think, I think the two things together at that moment 
where one failed institution in Congress and another that's pretty arrogant in, in the academic institutions, combining to have a moment that was pretty bad for both. Okay, let's move on here. Moving now, turning our attention to the South. It's 2024, and the crisis at our southern border has never been more dire. There were over 300,000 encounters at the southern border in December. That's a new monthly record. This comes as the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and 60 of his fellow congressmen and women are heading down to the border on Wednesday to assess the situation. And joining us now is Republican Congressman Nick LaLota, who represents New York's first congressional district that's out there on the tip of Long Island. He's already in Texas, and he'll be joining Speaker Johnson at the border tomorrow. What are you expecting to see? What have you already seen down there, Congressman? Well, this is my third trip to the border, of course. I'm a member of the Homeland Security Committee, uh, but I'm proud to join with the speaker on my now third trip to the border because the administration has totally failed America at the border, made us less safe, made us less secure. I'm here with now 65 of my colleagues will converge on Eagle Pass tomorrow, talk with border agents, talk with community leaders, understand the impact locally here, hopefully to inform us more on legislation that's going to be a compromise with the Senate. We want to be able to make sure that it's informed as possible. We want to tell our constituents, we hear them loud and clear. We understand this problem as House Republicans. And if necessary, we want to embarrass the administration because they haven't acted. They've had two <laughs> years to clean up this border and we're willing to embarrass the administration because it won't act right now. All right. You mentioned that uh, negotiation with the Senate. And, you know, a lot of people are looking at this. I mean, it's a it's a measure of how sensitive this has become for Democrats, that the White House is even sitting down with Senate Republicans and trying to work out a deal. Of course, it's tied to Ukraine aid. It's tied to Israel aid. It's tied to tied to Taiwan. Uh, That's just political sausage making. But let me ask you something, because a lot of your harder, harder line colleagues in the House saying there is no way they're going to go with go along with any compromise that falls short of those principles that they've already passed in the House of Representatives. What do you say? The American people want us to secure the border. They want Joe Biden, Secretary Mayorkas, to secure the border. There's there's no mistake why President Biden's disapproval rating on the border is at 67 percent. The American people want the change that's in H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act, that has hallmark pieces like remain in Mexico. I don't know what there is to negotiate. This is common sense stuff. If you looked at Bill Clinton's State of the Union address a couple of 10 years ago, he was saying the same things that House Republicans are saying today. It's unfair to migrants crossing the border to allow them to do so illegally. It's unfair to American workers to have their jobs taken by illegal folks. And it's unfair to folks who are already in the immigration line. Everything about this process is unfair and unsafe. Uh, Congressman, we're looking forward to that debate. We hope you have an opportunity to vote on something in the House. I want to change subjects really quick. Actually, it's related. And that is the busing of migrants to New York City. Of course, the mayor uh, came out and said, look, we're going to restrict these buses. You've got to give us 32 hours notice. You can only drop folks off uh, between the hours. I think it was 830 and noon on any given day. Uh, Well, Governor Abbott and the bus companies found a way around that. They're simply dropping them off any time of day or night in Hoboken or across the river in Bayonne, and they're taking a train in. What do you make of the situation in New York City? What do you make of the policy of Governor Abbott and others to send these migrants to places like the city, to Chicago, to Denver, and elsewhere? So there's a reason that every state is now a border state and every city is a border city. And it's not because a couple of governors are busing individuals into those cities. It's because those cities have chosen their sanctuary city policies. New York City Mayor Adams, he's chosen sanctuary policies which prevent 
federal law enforcement from coordinating with local law enforcement to enforce federal immigration law. That is the reason so many migrants, 10,000 a month, are coming to New York City. Mayor Adams should stop talking out of both sides of his mouth. He said this crisis is destroying New York City. He should respond to his own words by repealing those sanctuary policies that are acting as a magnet bring people across the border into New York. It's not about the buses. It's yeah. about the sanctuary city policies. Those ought to be repealed right away. All right, Congressman. Thanks very much for joining us from your first district redoubt in New York State. We will see you back here next week. Thanks. Happy New Year. Okay. Uh, Going to embarrass mm. the president by sending 65. He said it was 65. I thought it was 60 members of Congress down there. Is that going to work? I mean, there have been plenty of delegations that have gone down to the border. I, I bet you it's going to be more than 65 tomorrow, too. I yeah. Mean, this is too good of a... It's too good of a story. Sure, it's going to work. I mean, this is becoming a real, a real problem for the Biden administration. We're going to see some data later on in the show about some polling, about how, how the economy is coming back in voters' minds and Biden is still struggling. Why? I think a lot of it has to do with the border. You've got Democrat yeah. mayors, Democrat governors making an issue of this. Yes, Adams is upset with, with Governor Abbott in Texas, for sure. Yeah. But he's really upset with President Biden. Uh-huh. He just can't do anything about President Biden. He's yeah. trying to do something about Governor Abbott. No, this is... Yeah, I mean, he's walked right up to the edge. Of, I mean, well, he has criticized the administration, so I think it baffles me why I can't get these people on the phone and they're not doing something about it. Uh, you, you mentioned polls. Here's a poll, uh, an average of polls on the president's approval rating on the handling of the border. That's not a good-looking number there. 64% disapprove, 36% approve. Um, Dan, again, a measure of how volatile and vulnerable this has become for Democrats, that they're even at the table. It is volatile, it's, and it's a place that has to be addressed, uh, Mike. And I would say what, what the representative said, the quiet part out loud, that they want to embarrass the president. And the problem with the politics on the border is that it has to work. You need more judges, more asylum officers, yeah. you need a functioning system. And there is $14 billion on the table from the president to effectuate exactly those changes. But rather than negotiate that, the House Republicans went home. They want to play politics, not deal with the issue. So did the Democrat Senate, though, too. The the Democrat Senate went home as well. Exactly. I mean, mean, the House Republicans cannot be blamed for this issue. There's two bodies of government that are run by... Democrats, yeah, number well, one. Yeah, but the, the administration, you know, no, I just yes. want to finish this. The administration has a lot of ability to do what they need to do on their own without congressional Crystal. approval. Well, I just, I just think, you know, what administration has gotten this border crisis right? I mean, if we're being completely honest and we're having an honest conversation about um, immigration, this is a tough issue. And I don't think that sending migrants to big cities, it works. It doesn't. We see it right now. We see what Mayor Adams is doing in New York. That's still not solving this crisis yeah. that we have. And so if we continue to pump money into the system to figure out how we can secure the border yeah. with, you know, I, I, think, Governor, Governor, I think very quickly, Governor Abbott's take on it, though, is if they just stay in Texas, then no one cares besides me. If I send them to Chicago and Los Angeles and New York, not, maybe some Democrats will help me. But it's got you got a more chance of solving it if it's a bipartisan issue. OK, okay. coming up, we're going to move on. I'm going to give you one of these. y'all. <laughs> coming up, trouble signs for President Biden. New numbers show he's losing support among key groups that propelled him into the Oval Office. In 2020, can he win back Hispanic and black voters or is it too late? And a top Hamas leader is killed not in Gaza, but in Lebanon. Was Israel behind the strike and will it lead to a wider war in the Middle East? That's coming up on The Hill. Welcome back. And President Biden may be launching this election year campaign on top of a very shaky base 
Comparing to 2020 exit polls, general election polling now shows Biden losing support from key parts of his winning coalition. A new poll shows the president grabbing just 63% of support of African American, the African American electorate, really? And only 34% of Hispanics. Joining the panel now to discuss this potential problem is Republican strategist Shermichael Singleton. Okay, I'm a little skeptical about that figure about African Americans. The president won something like 90%. Yeah. Uh, the former president only, you know, a little better than 8% of African Americans. Is this possible? I mean, look, I think it's certainly possible. I mean, President Trump is remaining pretty consistent when you look at the data at 12%, which is what he received in 2020. I think the concern for Democrats in the Biden administration should be a vote for a third party candidate is essentially a vote for President Trump. Uh, older African Americans are more than likely going to vote uh, for the president. Black women in particular are more than likely going to be consistent in their support as well. Uh, but I do think there should be concern about African American men staying home and young black yeah. male and female voters voting third party around 20 to 21 percent. When you look at states such as Arizona and Georgia, which Biden won by less than 15,000 votes on both of the, in both of those states, Donald Trump does have an opportunity to flip those states, thus regaining enough electoral counts yeah. to potentially win. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, Sir Michael, is that Biden's problem is the same as Democrats are going to have. This problem among this portion of the electorate is the same problem that President Biden's going to have widely, and that is a combination of young people are turning away from politics as usual, and the president to a certain degree. Uh, and there is a great deal of apathy. In other words, people are not going to be motivated, or at least at this point, and remember, it's January 2nd, uh, to turn out at the polls as they did in the past. Yeah, I mean, I mean keep these things in mind. I mean, the president made some pretty grandiose promises to young voters. He hasn't delivered on many of those things. You, you have a, an economy that isn't necessarily great, although the administration continues to articulate that things are improving. And I would somewhat seed uh, that point. But when you look at the data, we see an increase of Americans who are living in poverty compared to 2020. That's up 4.7 percent. Uh, that is a problem. Uh, we see an increase of younger people graduating from college, not being able to afford yeah. a home because of a lack of afford of housing affordability. Those are very real, tangible things that people can feel despite whatever Im slight improvements uh, we may see in the economy. And so voters are going to yeah. ultimately vote with their pocketbooks, including young voters. And that could lead them to choosing someone else. OK, uh, I just want to put up you talk about youth voters support Biden versus Trump, 33 to 37 percent. A lot of warning signs, Dan. Uh, I'm going to go to the two Democrats here. A lot of warning signs here uh, for the president as we start this election year. Well, I think put it in context, though, Mike. I mean, every world leader around the globe has terrible approval ratings. Macron, 20 percent or 25 percent. Uh, same with Trudeau. Same with Sunak. That, that's, a, that's a feature of this moment in the world with the world being topsy-turvy. And I do think you look at these underlying numbers, and I, if I'm the campaign, I'm looking at them to be sure, because they can't obviously have an election with that kind of support. But on the other hand, what's more likely here, that Trump actually captures a third of black voters, or they all run to a third party, or that we frame the choice with Biden and yeah. Trump based on the record and who they are? And the problem right now is that in the head-to-head -head polls, 
the American public has not accepted that matchup. They don't understand. Yeah, this and that's Biden, why you that's see change things. That's why you see RFK getting 10 percent when he's named as a third party candidate. Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think many people, particularly when we talk about black voters and young voters, they're likely to either stay home or vote third party because they're they're not happy with the results that are coming out of this administration. And even as a democratic strategist, I'm I'm someone who look, who's looking at student loans, what the president promised around that. Yeah. I'm thinking about you know um, t- child tax credits. That's something that we can point to, but that doesn't benefit all of the Americans. That also doesn't benefit all of the black or the youth base. And uh-huh. so those are issues that I think many Americans are looking at. And also the economy. Sure, Michael brought it up. The economy is not in a good place, and that is something that voters absolutely. Absolutely go to the polls, yeah. what they're thinking about. All right, quickly, Nick. Yeah, Mike, if you bring up that, that uh, graphic again by the black and Hispanic voters, what you'll see is that Trump is at 12 percent with black voters, 39 percent with Hispanic voters. That's exactly where he was in 2020. Yeah. So what this is really saying right. is he's not picking up any support. Biden is simply losing. And that's a big difference. If, if they were going to vote for you and then they voted for me, that counts for two. Right. If they're going to vote for you and they don't vote, that only counts for one. So Trump's numbers are not moving that much. And that's interesting. to Well, watch. but that's my point, though, Mick, is that at this moment, every poll a year out with the commander in chief there is a reflection of their satisfaction, dissatisfaction with the world at large. And the leaders in the world stage are taking the brunt of public. Yeah, but tell your boss. Well, all right. Tell, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Go to the next all one because right. I, I could unload on that one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It, it, we could be worse. We could be Rishi Sunak. <laughs> All right, Sir Michael Singleton, thanks very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Hope you come back soon. All right. Yeah, thank you, guys. You're going to have to have me in studio next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unforgettable, unforgettable presence it's of Sir Michael Singleton. Michael. Yeah, yeah. It has cold in here. All right, coming up, blocked on the ballot, former President Trump is now fighting back after he's kicked off the primary ballot in Colorado and Maine. We'll talk about that and Israel's long-term strategy. The country starts to scale back troops in Gaza. What is the post-war plan? Talk about that next. The vast majority of people are in the sensible middle. They're not the far right wing and they're not the far left wing. Every point of view is represented on News Nation. Veteran journalist Elizabeth Vargas, now on News Nation. Welcome back. An explosion lighting up the sky in Beirut, Lebanon earlier today, killing a senior Hamas leader and two leaders of its armed wing. Hamas is confirming their deaths and is blaming Israel for the strike. But so far, Israel is silent. Back in November, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel, Israel would, quote, operate against Hamas leaders wherever they are. As with us now is Adam Bowler. He's a former senior Trump administration official who worked as a key negotiator on the Abraham Accords. Thanks very much for joining us, Adam. So attacking a Hamas leader in Beirut, dangerous, dicey, an escalation. What do you think? I think it may signal the second phase of this war for Israel. And the reason I say it is it it echoes Munich uh, and what happened in the PLO post-Olympics. Now they're going more targeted. Uh, And what you see now is the number two guy in all of Hamas assassinated in Beirut. This is sending a message from Israel that while we might start de-escalating, we're gonna be more targeted and nobody in Hamas is safe if they're senior. Now, uh, of course, Lebanon is known as the the home base of Hezbollah, uh, which is distinct from Hamas, no less an enemy of Israel, of course. But doesn't, I mean, the the situation in Lebanon with the government there and then their uneasy relationship with Hezbollah, 
Uh, doesn't that really light a match and force, force the hand of the government or even Hezbollah to launch further attacks from the north into the north of Israel as Israel continues to fight that, this front on their south or their southwest border uh, with Gaza? And I think they're all connected, right? The common connection here is Iran. I will say, though, right. what I expect is continued escalation, but uh, not to the point of full-out war. Hezbollah is not going to have their hand pushed by Hamas. Um, and if they wanted to, they already would have entered. So I think what you're going to see is continued efforts on Hezbollah to destabilize. It's sort of what you're seeing with the Houthis uh, in, uh, down in the, yeah. um, the, sea, the Red Sea there, is you're seeing action to destabilize. But Hezbollah is not going to have their hand forced by Hamas, or they already would be in this war. Right. Now, you mentioned Iran, and you also mentioned the Red Sea. An Iran warship has now entered the Red Sea after the U.S. destroyed three boats that Iran-backed Iran uh, Houthis had sent after a commercial vehicle, uh, or a commercial vessel, I should say, uh, in the Red Sea. How dangerous is this situation? The U.S. and the coalition now have warships escorting com commercial vessels through the Red Sea. It is a vital trade route. There's a lot at stake here. I agree with you, Mike. And I just saw that Maersk is pulling back and they're not going through the Red Sea anymore. Yeah. I will give the United States credit. I like seeing action. I think where we need to make moves is taking action. And I think the U.S. helicopter attacks were exactly spot on. I don't think we should let the Houthis run the board. We're the United States of America. And we can't accept that. And it impacts the entire country and the world when you have trade routes that change like that. So I think we need to see more action from the administration uh, just like they did today. I actually think if you look at the scoreboard today, it's United States 2, Iran 0, because at the end of the day, we took action on the Houthis and the number two individual from Hamas was killed, uh, which is funded by Iran. Wow. All right. At that, on that note, we're going to leave it there. Adam Bowler, thank you very much for joining us. On Friday, the State Department approved a proposed nearly $150 million sale of weapons to Israel invoking an emergency provision to, provision to bypass Congress. It's the second time the Biden administration has avoided congressional review since the start of the war. Uh, panel, uh, first of all, I want to get back to this issue of ships in the Red Sea. I mean, we've seen what disruptions in, in supply lines internationally and domestically can do to the U.S. economy. How big a danger is this, Mick? It is. About 12% of uh, world trade goes through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal. So it's not a big number, but it's not an insignificant number. And most of that, by the way, is going to Europe. Again, the oil that comes out of the Mideast, most of that goes to Europe and Asia. Very little, if any, ever actually comes here. But since oil is a world commodity, any change someplace else affects the price here. So it is, a, it is absolutely a big deal. And I, I, I think Adam's probably right about that. Yeah. that. This was a good move by the part of the administration. They're being aggressive in the region. They're doing the right thing under the circumstances. Chris, on the politics of this, obviously the president is under attack from those on the left because of the way Israel is prosecuting the war in Gaza. Um, what is a positive outcome? Look ahead three months. Mm. What is a positive political outcome for the president? Well, I think one of the positive political outcomes is that, you know, we maintain the, the trade routes, um, you know, throughout this, this particular region. And so I think that's what the president and his administration has to look ahead at how they negotiate, how they open up and keep the lines open as it relates to trade coming into this country. And uh, Ashley, we're talking about an attack on Lebanese soil now by Israel. Israel's denying it. 
but I think there's a wink and a nod going on there. Well, absolutely. I completely agree with what Adam said, and, and we talked about this last week, is, well, there's not much more of Gaza to destroy. If you look at those photos, yeah. there's nothing left. Although and now, they're still launching rockets and missiles from Gaza. I do not understand how they can still have launch sites. The tunnels. The tunnels. I was yeah. just going to say that. But I do think that this targeted approach, and they have over 50,000 hours from the GoPros that these terrorists yeah. wore during the attack, they're going to go find every single person that's still alive. It yeah. may take 10 years, it may take 20 years, but I guarantee they'll well, make sure those people so are So you're saying Israel's going to have to keep people on boots on the ground in Gaza for, for some No, reason. no, no, no. I think exactly what Adam said. I think it's more targeted. I don't know. Who knows where they'll be? Okay. I think they'll go after them. All right, coming up, the Jeffrey Epstein list. Which high-profile figures associated themselves with the late, uh, the late sex offender. What we're learning about the sealed court documents, that's coming up next. Trump asked a Maine court to overturn that state's decision barring him from its primary ballot. He's also soon expected to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, just around the corner from where we're sitting, to ask it to overturn the similar decision from the Colorado State Supreme Court. Okay, to the panel. Uh, the Supreme Court is going to be very instrumental in deciding what the ballot looks like, what this election looks like. There's a lot at stake here. We're talking about uh, ballot access, the 14th Amendment in Colorado and Maine and elsewhere, mm -hmm. perhaps Wisconsin, uh, and uh, immunity as president, Mick. Yeah, uh, there's going to be a lot of things. And that may be just the beginning. Uh, who knows what happens with these? Because he's probably yeah. going to lose the immunity case. It just doesn't make any sense. The president of the United States is immune from everything. I don't know what the basis for that argument is. Um, but there could be a lot more things that come in the future to the Supreme Court. It would be nice. They have a chance to do something unusual, which is they could rule 9-0 in his favor on the ballot access in Colorado and 9-0 against him on immunity, show a little bit of sort of a unified position on politics in America these days. Don't know what's going to happen, but that option is out there. I think that's possible. I also think what's interesting for observers is not just the ruling itself on those cases, but the basis on which the court rules. Uh -huh. In the Colorado case and in Maine, there's a question about, one, was he an insurrectionist, finding a fact, Two, does the 14th Amendment apply to a president? Correct. That, that's a question. And three, was there due process followed? I think the due process argument is the strongest. Nick, you made the point that the 14th Amendment is the one that may be cleanest for them. If they, I don't know. If they rule that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to a president, because other places in the Constitution that president and vice president are identified by name, in this section it simply says senators, house members, and other officers. Um, it doesn't say president, vice president. If they use that as a basis to kick out Colorado right now, it applies to all 50 states. If they do due process, it means that it's open in every other state to try and do it Your, properly. Yeah, it's valid and it's cleaner that way, but I just wonder how can a court decide the president of the United States is not... <laughs> subject to the same provisions as the vice president. Uh, I want to take this back to the campaign trail really quick. We're talking about Donald Trump. Nikki Haley, of course, gaining ground in New Hampshire, certainly sort of a stalemate in Iowa. But all of a sudden, she is becoming more critical of the former president. DeSantis and Haley continue to go after each other. Uh, but what was the statement that uh, Haley put out there, guys? Can we put that up? I'm, I'm sort of lost here. I don't have it in my papers. I've been searching all over. Thank you. You stole it from me. <laughs> no, no. Oh, my gosh. All right. And I quote, we can expect the, the Nikki not ready for prime time. Haley campaigned to launch efforts designed to co-opt and take over a GOP nominating contest with non-Republicans and Democrats, hoping that a coalition of the unwilling is enough to slow President Trump down. That's from uh, some of his top aides on the campaign, former President Trump. Uh, but even though there, so a shot across the bow, Crystal, at, at Nikki Haley, I, I think that's the first time we've really seen them go after her. Is it, are they scared? I mean, are they worried? Well, I don't know if they're worried. I mean, Trump is still polling much higher than any other candidate on the GOP side. 
But I think, you know, he's trying to draw a contrast between the would-be second runner um, and himself. And so, but the question really here is, would Nikki Haley be his running mate? I mean, if she does well... Come on, really? It seems <laughs> unlikely, right? I mean, maybe, but I mean, it'd be nice to see another woman um, as a vice presidential um, running mate. Yeah, how, how does that help maybe Donald Trump to have Trump. Nikki Haley? <laughs> or how does that help Nikki Haley? But anyway, go either Should way. Should vice president of the United States, But perhaps? no, I think that when you're being attacked, it's obviously, um, there's out. a positive side of it because it does mean you're relevant, Absolutely. as you said. Um, but I also think that she has made a point not to go negative against her opponents in ads or in her town halls in both Iowa yeah. and New Hampshire. But there has been so many ads against her from Governor DeSantis and obviously um, the former President Trump that I think yeah. she's decided she went up today negative against DeSantis and, and she's going to continue to do that. Okay, election. Joe, did you tell me we have that, that ad from uh, Haley? Because I'm going to play that now. Haley and DeSantis ads attacking each other, playing them back to back. DeSantis even allowed a Chinese military contractor to expand just miles from a U.S. naval base. Phony Ron DeSantis. Too lame to lead, too weak to win. Tricky Nikki pretends she's tough on China, but as governor, she promised to do whatever it takes to get Chinese companies set up in our backyard. Tricky Nikki, Dan. <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> two, two tickets out of Iowa, three tickets out of Iowa. How does the old saying go? These guys are fighting for the second spot, obviously. Nikki, Tricky Nikki and Ron DeSantis. Well, all the respect to Ashley, who I, I do respect greatly. I'm a little... I, 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 I do, Ashley. I, that's, a, that's a preface to something that's really... I know, really yeah. and, Why don't you just say you wish you don't live in Iowa and have all these ads? Well, what I was going to say is I think this is more like a play-in game, and they're going to play the one seed next, and that's going to be it. Okay. All right. I like that analogy. We're in a sports season. Every season is a sports season. Okay. Meantime, another story we're keeping an eye on. At any minute, nearly 200 names connected to Jeffrey Epstein could become public. News Nation correspondent Laura Engel has more on what we can expect. Laura, yeah, you know, all eyes are on that New York court, right? <laughs> that's right. You know, we've been waiting for this document release all day long because the judge who has been guarding this list of names of Jeffrey Epstein's associates and accusers ruled last month that everything could be unsealed after January 1st. So with this being the first business day of the year, we're all watching the court system. Nothing as of yet. And many of these people named in the hundreds of pages of court documents have been fighting for years to keep their names from being made public. The biggest name on the list that we know of will be former President Bill Clinton, who was mentioned more than 50 times in the redacted court filings. Mr. Clinton has already acknowledged that he used Jeffrey Epstein's private jet for trips overseas for his humanitarian efforts, but denies doing anything illegal and says he stopped associating with Epstein in 2005. Now, the U.S. District Judge here, Loretta Preska, ruled last month there was no legal justification for continuing to conceal the names who have only been listed listed as John and Jane Doe's in the court records. The ruling caps off a five-year legal battle by the Miami Herald to obtain documents in a defamation lawsuit filed against Jelaine Maxwell by victim Virginia Jufre. That lawsuit was settled out of court in 2016, but most of the evidence in this case was sealed. That's why everybody wants to see this. Legal experts say, though, while there is potential for embarrassment for those on the list, it is critical for the public to know that these people have not been charged with any criminal criminal acts. And while some names have been made public through the years, we've learned that there are 13 people who fought unsuccessfully to keep their names secret. The names could help fill in some of the blanks on who may have possibly helped Epstein and how personal those interactions were. We continue to watch it here in our newsroom in New York. 
And we thank you for that, Laura Engel. Thank you for standing by. We'll come back to you if we have any news breaking out of that. I know, Mick, as we just heard, uh, the reports of former President Clinton is on this list. I mean, even if you're not charged, even if you're even if you're not charged with anything, anything, as Laura pointed out, whether you got a flight back to New York on this plane, you're still going to show up on this list. How big a deal is this? Yeah, you know, if I'm in the White House with the president, this is coming out today. I'm like, look, as long as you don't have anything after 2005 and as long as there's nothing specific to, to bad behavior. And they sort of leaked out today. He's going to be in there a lot. And he's going to be there a lot because of uh, his participation in depositions of fighting to be deposed and not to be deposed, et cetera. It's part of the legal process. If that's all this is and there's nothing after 2005, it's not going to be that big a deal for the president. In fact, the most embarrassing thing that I just saw on that video was... Yeah. Um, it was Jeffrey Epstein in his Harvard jacket. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, Harvard be, is yeah. taking a public relations beating <laughs> these days. I do not want to be associated with this, but in terms of President Clinton, if there's nothing after 2005 or there's nothing, no smoking gun, it's not going to be a big deal for him. All right, we're going to leave that there. Coming up, bitter news for the beer industry. Why beer drinking has fallen to the lowest level in more than 20 years. Huh? <laughs> Here's what caught our eye. Americans are consuming less beer than they have in decades. U.S. beer shipments are on track to dip below 200 million barrels for the first time since 1999 when they partied like 1999. Consumers are choosing to consume less or turning away from alcohol altogether. The widespread boycott against Bud Light also exacerbates the decline. Panel, okay, it's dry January. First of all, who's into dry January? No, definitely not. No, 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 definitely not. Crystal, you laughed out loud. <laughs> no, I, I'm not a dry January person. Uh, well, like Crystal, I'm assuming you, you prefer champagne. I do like a nice. <laughs> I'm not a beer drinker um, because it has so much wheat in it, but I like a, a nice. Say cocktail. wheat or weed? Wheat. Oh, wheat. <laughs> yes. Back to the weight gain thing. But I do have to say, I have my focus group of hockey moms because I spend a lot of time with them with my son. And yeah. none of them drink beer anymore. They all drink that hard seltzer stuff. hard stuff. seltzer stuff. Yes. I got three young adults in my house, and they're all of age, mind you, but they're all, you know, the hard seltzer, the white, I don't want to endorse anyone hard seltzer, but they're all, they're all drinking that. Yeah. I think there's more. Dan, what's your, do you a beer uh, well, drinker? I, I prefer the you're, champagne you're drinking beers. Yeah. Uh, Miller, Miller High Life. Ooh. You look like a shot in a beer kind of guy. I mean, I, 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 I grew up in Wisconsin, and I think what I'll probably do is post this clip to my Twitter feed and get the word out, and we'll be above 200 million. Whoa, 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 no, you're, from Wisconsin. you're from Wisconsin. You're a Democrat from Wisconsin talking right. about beer, and you did not name Spotted Cow. How is that possible? I, oh, yeah. have, I have a case of Spotted Cow in my house. Okay, this is the right beer, now. by the way, that Republicans are only allowed to have one of when they go to Wisconsin. It's a fabulous oh my beer, gosh. but all of the money goes to the largest Democrat donor in the state. I was just so up in Milwaukee <laughs> looking at the, where they're having the, the convention this summer, and uh, no, spot, they're all pushing cow. spotted cows. No, no spotted cow. Deb runs a great business. All right, we're, we are we are officially in the new year, but this is an, a subject near and dear to this suburban dad's heart. There's one holiday symbol we're leaving behind: Christmas trees. Uh, for those who celebrate, there may be a religious timeline to look for. Christians usually take down their trees on Epiphany Day. Remember the 12 days of Christmas, the 12th day after Christmas, and the arrival of the three wise men. Uh, Epiphany Day falls on January 6th this year, so you're officially, I guess, if you, uh, you follow the dictates of the church, supposed to take down your tree on January 6th, although in my neighborhood, you know, you get this dried-out tree in your house. You're going to get it out of there before January 6th. So I think last year I took mine down like February 1st. And that's really yeah. embarrassing. It's another thing on my to-do list. Yeah, you're you're a fake to. tree man, aren't you, Mick? No, no, no. I, I'm a no tree kind of guy. They're too expensive. $200 <laughs> no for a tree is way too expensive. Oh, my God. You admit and that. And I was called show. the Grinch on this show. <laughs> you don't have a Christmas tree. All right. We've got to wrap it up. It's turned red. 
Thanks for watching The Hill on News Nation. Set your DVR to watch us at 5 p.m. Eastern. We will be back tomorrow. That's a promise. Elizabeth Vargas reports starts right now. Good evening and welcome to Elizabeth Vargas Reports. I'm Elizabeth Pran and we have a lot to get to tonight. It looks as if Israel has taken out a top Hamas leader. Has the Gaza war reached a turning point and what does that mean? Police are saying that this fiery crash at a rock concert was intentional. So are music events now targets? What does that mean for you? But we start with this stunning video out of Japan. While